Blog Talk Radio. There was a time I was so afraid, so scared to do what I wanted. In looking back, I can see all the mistakes that I made, and I wish that I could talk to me and tell me I can change. Don't be afraid. Just walk with your Blog Talk Radio Safe Recovery. This is Monica Richardson, and I am your host. Today is March 17th, 2015. Happy St. Patrick's Day to any of you out there in Blog Talk Radio land that's celebrating this day. It was a big day in New York when I was growing up. I think it still is in Chicago and New York. I've seen a few signs here in L.A., but not too much. Okay, so I'm really excited about this guest. We have Andrew Tatarski, who is going to be on any minute, and he came to me through Gabriel Glaser, who is speaking high praises about you, and I'd like to do a little plug. If you don't know it, go on to The Atlantic, and Gabriel has uh, a great piece with over a thousand comments already, so just put Google into uh, Google The Atlantic and Gabriel Glaser. The name of the piece is called The Irrationality of Alcoholics Anonymous. So you go, girl, and thank you again for introducing me to Andrew. Now, I'm going to tell you about him. So Andrew is a Ph.D. He created the Center for Optimal Living in New York, New York. Phone number there is 212-213-8905. And uh, Dr. Andrew Tatarski has developed integrative harm reduction psychotherapy for helping people with substance use concerns and other risky behavior. IHRP brings psychoanalysis, CBT, and mindfulness together in a harm reduction frame. The therapy has been described in his book, Harm Reduction Psychotherapy, a new treatment for drug and alcohol problems as a series of papers. The book has been translated into Polish and Spanish. Andrew holds a doctorate in clinical psychology from the City University of New York. He is founder and director of the Center for Optimal Living in New York City, a treatment and training center that is based in integrative harm reduction psychotherapy. Founding member and past president, Division on Addiction of New York Psychological Association, member of the Board of Moderation Management Network, Inc., clinical advisor to the New York State Office of Alcoholism and Substance Abuse Services. I should probably get that name updated, don't you think? Alcoholism. Hmm. Okay, he is a professor of professional practice, uh, the Harm Reduction Psychotherapy Certificate Program. That's awesome. The New School for Social Research and a consultant in the Advanced Specialization in Family and Couples Therapy at the Postdoctoral Program in Psychotherapy and Psychoanalysis at New York University. Uh, Dr. Tatarski trains nationally and internationally. And so, with that, we will bring him on the show. Hello there. Hi. Hi, I'm Monica. I'm so How glad doing, to Andrew? be with you. Oh, I'm, I'm so doing happy great. to have you on. Good, good. I'm glad you're doing good. I'm great as well, or good, good as good can be today, and very excited to have you mm-hmm. on for you know many reasons. But uh, so, I would like to just let's go into your background because when you just we started to talk about it. Uh, I thought it was interesting. So you were involved in this way back in the 80s. Do you want to talk about those early days a little bit, just to give us some background on yourself? Sure. Um, so um, 
I guess the an interesting beginning is that when I was a graduate student in the late 70s and early 80s, um, first of all, I received no training in you know working with people with substance use concerns, <laughs> and that unfortunately is still the standard in the field. Most clinical professionals do not receive training, well, uh, and certainly not adequate training. Uh-huh. But nonetheless. Um, through my graduate training, just mm-hmm. by happenstance, I happened to work with um, a number of patients that were referred to me that had drug and alcohol problems. Right. So that was kind of a prehistory. So I had a little bit of a taste of working with folks uh, in psychotherapy, um, in my clinical training, my internship at Kings County Hospital in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. and. So my first exposure was that this was a very varied, interesting, um, you know, workable group of people like any other group of people. Right. Then I finished my clinical internship, and um, in a kind of coincidence, which, you know, I later really realized was not a coincidence at all, uh, over the years I came to understand more and more about what brought me to the field. But mm-hmm. at that point, this is now 1981, I got my first job in traditional in a traditional addiction treatment center up in East Harlem. And what I learned uh, in that program was the traditional disease model, abstinence-based approach to treatment. And I also learned that it was the only acceptable way to approach people with drug and alcohol problems. I was essentially told, whatever you learned before about working with people, you need to throw out uh, because when you're talking about what you know they called addicts and alcoholics, which mm-hmm. terms that I have a great deal of difficulty with, um, you know, but you got to do this other thing, this disease model, abstinence-only approach. So wow. I worked in within that framework for roughly the first eight years of my career, and I moved into positions of leadership. I um, uh, ran a few programs as a clinical director. Ultimately, in the late 80s, one of the premier programs, um, intensive outpatient programs in New York City. And while I think we certainly helped some people, over the course of those years, I began to notice with an increasing uh, s- sense of dread, of confusion, of anxiety, and even mm-hmm. shame that the majority of the people that were coming to these programs were not uh, finishing them, were not um, achieving abstinence, were not mm-hmm. successful, or, or rather we were not successful with them. But mm-hmm. the way that the program or the model framed it is that they you know, weren't ready for treatment. They either left mm-hmm. prematurely or in many cases we had to discharge them, that is, kick them out of the program for the problem that they were coming to us for help with. <laughs> and um, I had a, a, you know, several, uh, I mean, increasing number of really disturbing experiences which led me to begin to believe that there's something wrong, you know, seriously wrong with this picture, that mm-hmm. the overarching model is not helping most people, and the best that we could do was to blame the patient for our failure, you know, they're not motivated, sufficiently ready, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. haven't hit a low enough bottom. This mm-hmm. kind of language is what. Um, and I began to feel like there's, you know, there's got to be another way. I mean, and began to question the model. And what is the linchpin of the model? First right. of all, it's the disease concept, you know, uh-huh. Jelinek's disease concept, a particular, what I've now come to think of as an addiction story, you know, a particular addiction recovery narrative, Mm -hmm. um, which we can go into, I'm sure you've talked about in this program, your show, but, and I began to, you know, and and the the linchpin of that model is the abstinence requirement. That is, Mm -hmm. abstinence is the only acceptable goal, it's the only indication of success. And I began to think this abstinence requirement seems to be what is keeping people from accessing treatment and from, um, you know, benefiting. Um, P.S., given that the majority, you know, I've already said the majority of folks were not completing treatment successfully, but 
I began to look around at the larger field, and I noticed that actually most people don't go to traditional treatment. They weren't then, and they're not now. And why? Because as Mark Willenbring, who was the director of research at NIAAA, once said in a a lecture, because treatment stinks. (laughs) And that was the conclusion that I came to. And I began looking around for alternatives. Um, And uh, in a conversation with a man who who was really a godfather in the harm reduction field, Alan Marlatt, who I had the really good fortune to know, Uh I was telling him about my quandary. And um, he said, there's an alternative. And Uh there's a whole other way to think about being helpful to people, and that's harm reduction. Hmm. And that moment, you know, sort of introduced me to a whole other perspective, a whole new paradigm, and that turned my career, you know, 180 degrees in the other direction, uh, away from abstinence and disease and toward um, empowering, compassionate, collaborative harm reduction therapy. And so since then, I've really devoted my... What What year year was that? Yeah, that conversation happened in 1994. Uh Um, I I had already, you know, had started a private practice a few years before, and so I had already been sort of challenging the um, the ideology of the land and committing blasphemy by actually accepting active drug and alcohol users into my practice. Yeah. And lo and behold, many of them did amazingly well, you know. Yeah. Many of them cut back their substance use or were using more safely or some of them stopped, began mm-hmm. to address other issues. So yeah. that was sort of the other side of my quandary that I brought to Alan. And he said, you're doing harm reduction. And that was the introduction to a whole new um, vision for me. Well, and since then... Yeah, I've really devoted my career to really kind of thinking through what are the implications of that harm reduction model for more explicitly for helping people change. But I've even begun to, you know, broaden that to thinking about developing models either for helping people or for helping oneself, you know, kind of self-guided change mm-hmm. models that are mm-hmm. framed by harm reduction principles. The thing that I like so much about people like yourself that I've met um, as somebody who left AA of many years was the language and the difference in the language. And maybe one of the first persons Mm -hmm. I interviewed and spoke to was Stephen Slate. And it was before Mm -hmm. an interview. I had just went out to New York and I was interviewing some other people and I said something and he said, you know, when my drinking or my drug use had become problematic... And I just mm-hmm. like that word itself, you know, it was so refreshing. And I remember the first time I went to a SMART meeting, well, I was still attending AA, and I went to a moderation management meeting. I went to these other meetings, and I was like, I felt like my head was uh, opened up and grabbing on to really sane thinking. Um, and I'd like to mm-hmm. ask you, let's go back in time again. How many, what kind of community, because mm-hmm. right, when I interviewed Dr. Curran and Dr. Jaffe out here, I had the sense of, especially Dr. Kern and some of these other guys have been alone for a very long time up against a lot yeah. of bullies. And I can call them a lot of names, and I'm going to, because I was in that world, and I know exactly what they're capable of doing. And they've been running this mm-hmm. world here in America for way too long. But were you? did you feel isolated, or was there a community of clinicians that were on the same page as you far back into the 80s? Can you talk a bit about the community of clinicians? Sure. Sure. Um, well, I would say that um, I did have a community. I had I had a few communities. Um, first of all, um, I had a community of psychology, and psychology is or was and still is um, the the community out of which most, if not all, of the contemporary progressive thinking about problematic substance use and its treatment comes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was, you know, sort of my earliest imprint as a psychology graduate student. Um, I was trained in a whole other way of thinking about things. As I said, that you know, when I entered the field, I was told I had to throw it out. 
Well, but, uh-huh. so I I had I had that community, um, and then in the late eighties, um, a group of us in New York State, under the leadership of a guy named Arnold Washington, who has been an important figure in the field, um, started. Uh, the Division on Addiction for New York State Psychological Association, you know, which mm. I'm still a, a committee member of. And mm-hmm. so this was a group of addiction psychologists that were coming together to think about um, how to, you know, effectively help. And so that right. was also a more progressive uh, support system, mm-hmm. even though, you know, we still were largely trapped in that under that ideological um prison mm. is the way I've begun to think of it. Um yeah. we were you know, we were supporting each other and trying to find ways out of the prison, uh I guess escape routes. Um but then when I had that, you know, amazingly um life changing conversation with Alan Marlat, um he introduced me to the harm reduction community, and mm-hmm. the harm reduction coalition had just established itself or been formed, I believe, the year before, mm-hmm. either in 1992 or 93. And um, so he introduced me to the leadership of the harm reduction coalition, who in turn connected me with a small group of. Um, clinicians in New York City that were also just getting introduced to harm reduction. And, I mean, this is a wonderful part of the history of harm reduction therapy. I connected with somebody that's been known as the godmother of harm reduction, uh, a woman named Edith Springer. Mm -hmm. She was, she called herself an ex-dope fiend or an Mm -hmm. ex-junkie. And... um, she was one of the people that went over to Europe and discovered harm reduction uh, as a philosophy and practice and brought it back to the United States. Mm. Alan Marlatt was another one of those people. Right. But So I was introduced to Edith, and then we gathered a group of about 10 or 15 of us social workers and psychologists and counselors together, and we began meeting, I think, in 1995, and we met for five years on a monthly basis, yeah. and it was a kind of coming-out group. I mean, it was mm-hmm. a professional support group, but right. in 1995, harm reduction was considered a dirty word, you know, mm-hmm. enabling. You know, you're going to give people permission to use drugs, uh, and so it really did function as a kind of coming-out group where people felt um, they had a community of support, um, that would back them up, um, you know, in many ways, you know, with advice, with emotional support, with mm-hmm. um, with referrals. And and then there was the larger harm reduction community, which at the time uh, was largely composed of public health folks and activists. And mm-hmm. so I felt that I had this large community backing me up uh, and really empowering and supporting me to you know, to take, to speak up publicly. Um, so that was, you know, a very important support for me over the, you know, the late 90s. Uh, so it does sound like you had support and you weren't isolated. And let me ask you this, because I always thought of harm reduction, and when I first heard about it, uh, just dealing to do with heroin and needles and stuff. But when mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. was, you know, when I learned about harm reduction for alcohol through Ken Anderson, uh, when mm-hmm. or was it always uh, alcohol included in those conversations back then? It's just that I was in, uh, you know, in a different mm-hmm. world at that time. So was that harm reduction well, quite used for alcohol or people who were abusing, or was it still pretty black and white with people who drank? Well, yeah. Let, let me just a very brief prehistory, um, which is a wonderful history. Uh, you know, in the late or the mid seventies. Uh, in Amsterdam, Holland, there was a huge community of drug users that um, descended on the city from all over the world. I mean, it was a great party time. You know, this was sort of, um, you know, sort of just at the end of the hippie era and and hippies and activists from all over were descending on Amsterdam. They had um, a serious 
a lot of drug use. And mm-hmm. the Department of Health then noticed that traditional treatment wasn't helping, and they began to experiment with what later became harm reduction. So mm-hmm. it did really emerge um, around drug use, mm-hmm. not uh, alcohol. But but in a way, Holland was a very tolerant society and had a lot of kind of harm reduction thinking already around alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of a natural framework. But then right. moving into the 80s, um, in Merseyside, England, there was another group called HIT, um, uh, organized by Pat O'Hare, that developed a harm reduction center. And um, they did begin doing some harm reduction work with alcohol, Al- although I think that the reason that we mostly associate harm reduction with IV drug use is that it took the HIV-AIDS epidemic to explode and threaten, you know, straight society or, you know, threaten the larger society mm-hmm. for society to be willing to begin to embrace non-abstinence interventions, which is one way to think about harm reduction. So mm-hmm. the HIV-AIDS epidemic, which was largely driven by um, IV drug use early on, mm-hmm. um, was what what what, you know, Harm reduction was riding, uh, you know, on that wave. Um, so it, I think it was, you know, so it first emerged largely around IV drug use um, and helping to, you know, help people stay alive and safe and contain the epidemic through clean needle exchange or distribution, um, uh, and as primarily a public health intervention. And that's how most people know harm reduction, but. We could think of it as a broader philosophy, a set of principles that has much wider implications for um, alcohol and for you know psychotherapy, counseling, substance use treatment, and self-guided change as well. Right, right. Uh, you know, there's a, a lot of things we talked about that um, I'll just we'll jump around here. Uh, one is the criminal justice system uh, here in California very aware of that even though it's in violation of our First Amendment rights uh, to be court-ordered to Alcoholics Anonymous for the reasons they are. I know that New York State is the same thing, that it's still going on um, in most cities anyway. We're out of the mouth of a judge. We'll say you need to go to AA or NA meetings or else you're going to go to jail when you come back here. Um, Can you talk about a little bit of the history with New York and your laws, with DUI, you can talk about any part of this that I'm going to bring up. Drug court, when it began, how it changed. Um, Are there judges? Have you ever sat in court? Do you know are they still doing it? Are they doing it in the roundabout way? Where that then once Mm -hmm. you get a DUI, you get that sent to a class, and then at the class you're told, you you know, I'm not in New York anymore, so you can talk any part of what I just threw out there. (laughs) Okay. I I have to admit that I'm not um you know really that um deeply knowledgeable about the the details of mm, okay. all of what you just talked about. Um I do know that uh I mean this is what I believe that drug uh, that rather um you know drug court judges have a lot of discretion. Mm-hmm. and that there are not things that are automatically mandated um and that if we consider that that you know drug courts like every other intervention around drug use emerged out of this abstinence based ideolo- ideology right. um that's what they were led to believe they needed to do mm-hmm. and however i think that many judges and parole officers um, probation officers recognize and are increasingly recognizing that that system makes no sense whatsoever mm. you know, to to mandate mm-hmm. abstinence-based treatment, mandate AA, uh, right. mandate abstinence, or else you go back to jail. So mm-hmm. I think that to some extent the system is in flux, and mm-hmm. um, and and you know folks within the system are increasingly open to having reasonable dialogues with knowledgeable people 
who can present an alternative vision, which is what I think, this is why I think, and this is one of my, my side interests, or, um, I mean, it's it's really a passion of mine, is that I believe that that substance use treatment professionals, researchers, um, academics, and so on, have a social responsibility to uh, be agents of change, to have an impact on the system, mm-hmm. and um, to be educators and to be in dialogue um, to move the system forward. And, and I do think that there's an increasing openness to that. However, there's still a lot of, you know, horrible old school thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, uh, you know, I mean, just like for example, and I've heard this too many times. You know, a couple is breaking up. One spouse accuses the other one of being a drunk, an alcoholic, mm-hmm. and it's kind of like McCarthy's big lie. You know, once you're you're mm-hmm. um, named or dabbed with that mark, um, all bets are off. You can't see your kids. You have to prove to the, you know abstinence to the mm-hmm. court. You know, guilty mm-hmm. until proven innocent. And and I've had lots of clients who have just had their lives turned into hell because of that accusation. Um, yeah. That, so that there's is a lot of I want to, to tell, I, w- I want to just tell people who you are again. So those of who, there's a lot of people in the chat room and listening, and we were talking to Andrew Tatarski, and Andrew is located, um, he's a doctor, a Ph.D. in New York City. He has a Center for Optimal Living and has a practice there. He has a book that you can get on Amazon. It's called Harm Reduction Psychotherapy, A New Treatment for Drug and Alcohol Problems. Now, uh, do you do one-on-one therapy, psychotherapy in New York still, as well as your teaching, training? Yes. Yes. So the Center for Optimal Living is organized around my approach to harm reduction psychotherapy, which I call integrative harm reduction psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. Um, this is going to be a, long, a long-winded way to get around to that. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we have uh, seven clinicians that work together with me very closely at the center as a team. Mm-hmm. And, the, and we offer individual therapy, group therapy, uh, couples and family work. And we work with psychiatrists who... Um, all work under this harm reduction framework. Mm-hmm. And the essence for me of a harm reduction framework, you know, the catchphrase that, that leads in, in any description of what harm reduction is, is you start where the person is, mm-hmm. uh, which means it's a, it's a simple but very radical principle, which means you as a helper get your own agenda out of the way and create a space for that individual to speak to to um, to speak their truth to you know get supported in clarifying mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. they are, what they need, and you know what's going to be most helpful to them. So, in starting where people are at our center or in this way of working, we create a space to then collaborate with people, actively supporting them in figuring out what is the nature of their concern and what goals and what sort of strategy for working toward their goals makes the most sense for them. So rather than cookie cutter, you know, top down, you have a disease and we're going to tell you what you need to do, we flip that completely upside down. You know, we are collaborating with individuals who have expertise in their own lives and supporting Mm -hmm. them in clarifying what's actually going to be helpful to them. So then together we can figure out, we can Mm -hmm. figure out maybe you don't need therapy. Maybe you can, you know, do some things on your own. You can Mm -hmm. work on lifestyle changes. You know, you can uh, structure your lives in ways that are more satisfying. Or maybe you could benefit from some self-help program support. Or maybe, you know, some, you know, combination of therapeutic modalities will be helpful, but um, all of that needs to be worked out in collaboration with people on a highly personalized basis. Um, so, yeah, we do all of that. Um, mm-hmm. That so sounds fantastic. Sometimes people come yeah. in. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, how how does what is that? How does that sound fantastic and useful from your point of view? Or 
given your perspective on you know well, what's happening in the field. Uh, you know, it, it just is because uh, personally, on a personal note, my father had issues, and when I was completely brainwashed by AA, well, not completely. I mean, there were you know 20 years ago I had good therapy, so I learned that there were many things in AA that were uh, just outright lies, like you should never get angry, and I mean there was just some bizarre things that are you know, just chanted over and over again, and I learned in therapy. A lot of good things, and I had a great Ph.D. therapist that I did a lot of work with over 20-something years ago. But my father um, went back to drink alcohol and abuse pharmaceutical pills. I tried to help him, and only I didn't even know there was anything else. And I and I think that's part of my passion is to educate, uh, you know, especially in America, that there's other options, and especially there's free options that are good. And that maybe some people mm-hmm. that I didn't even know there was such a thing as a non twelve step, you know, addiction therapist, which is what I the wording I, we all use. All of those those of us who hate AA, mm-hmm. there's millions mm-hmm. of silent people who are no longer be, are, are no longer silent because of the blogs and the internet. And now there's ju- you know a lot of Facebook pages that are filled with us. Mm-hmm. And then, so learning that my so I watched my father die, and it was very, very mm-hmm. sad because he was missing from my life. Yeah. And I, tr- you know, I tried, and other family members tried, but all we ever forced fed him was, you know, I send him, you know, my sober friends or my NA, whatever. And my father was like, "Get out of mm-hmm. here!" Like I he hated Alcoholics Anonymous. And right. you know, and then another, you know, somebody else really close to me was also having problems, and he. You know, A would have killed him, and the the best thing mm-hmm. in our life was alternatives, where Dr. Kern and mm-hmm. Jaffe have you know moderation and meeting the person where they're at, and then it being introduced by Jeff Foot, you know, to somebody out here, Emily mm-hmm. Cazell, who was amazing, and learning about craft, and oh. you know, it's just polar mm-hmm. opposites to meet with a therapist who somebody could actually arrive drunk and they didn't throw them out, you know. And, of course, there were boundaries made. Right. But, you know, just the beauty, I mean, it was so, Andrew, it was so 180 degrees uh, in another yeah. way of, you know, and they say science and kindness or whatever, but it's like it really is wonderful. Yeah. And you hear the stories of uh-huh. families bullying people and that the wrong things that I said to my sons as they were teenagers, you know, and, and to be really straight out, if I was still in AA, my sons probably wouldn't even be speaking to me right now. And I have a great relationship with my sons. You know, because well, you you're know, such that, an asshole that, when you're yeah. an AA member. Even if you're not an asshole, when it comes to teenagers who are going to drink or who are going to even just smoke pot, which everybody in California, I think, smokes it, or every state where it's, you know, medicinally legal, right? That you're... Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of black and white thinking, even though I thought I was very open-minded and I thought I was this and I thought I was that, you know what the trip is? I was brainwashed by a 1939 modality or whatever the fuck AA was or is, you know? So when you talk or I talk to Jeff Foote or I talk to Emily or I talk to all of you guys that are out there, I am always being educated a little more about sane treatment. And there are millions of people who are not going to go down that road, who are hurting, who are being coerced. And I guess mostly I'll finish up and let you say what you want to say, but there are pilots mm-hmm. and doctors and nurses by the boatload, and they are going to sue the FAA, and I hope there's a group of nurses that are going to sue whoever they can sue and a group of doctors that they have been forced into an Alcoholics Anonymous that nobody including me and every friend and every hippie that I knew would have never tolerated the bullshit that's going on right now in our country with every professional who has a license. AA mm-hmm. is in control. Mm-hmm. Did you know that? Hmm. You know what well, happens to people when they get into trouble? It's unbelievable, Andrew. Yeah. So yeah. we need, like, well, uh, go ahead. Yeah. Really upsetting. You and I I touched. I know. I know. You and I touched on this when we spoke before. Um, I'm not so sure. I agree that AA is in control. I think about it a little differently. You know, the AA emerged 
at a time in the 30s when there was no help <clears throat> for people with drug and alcohol problems. And yeah, it was a bunch of white guys that got together and decided that they were going to you know, tell everybody else what to do. So that's the roots of it, right? Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. at the time when AA was first started, it was the only way. I think that, you know, mainstream psychiatry, mental health had pretty much abandoned, you know, people with alcohol problems. Um, so then as it, it, it morphed, AA then was the foundation for the contemporary alcohol and drug treatment system. So... <clears throat> Then the the people that had got sober in AA populated and set the agenda for the system, and now the system, which had to pay for itself and had jobs that it had to, you know, people had to keep jobs, um, and were invested in their recoveries based on AA, had a lot of motivation now for promoting and 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 um, prescribing AA. So that was a real shift where. Now you have this multi-billion-dollar industry, drug mm -hmm. treatment industry, right. alcohol treatment industry, um, that is selling AA, and therefore it has to sell the idea. It's invested in the idea that AA is the only way to get sober, and then you have this criminal justice system, um, which is right. also sort of in cahoots, right? Um, oh yeah. That is all about abstinence, um, and and so I think that the forces are much bigger than AA and that it's you know it's kind of a it's this what I was saying before this addiction narrative uh, recovery narrative that mm -hmm. emerged out of AA originally but now it's become fueled by many more forces um that's right uh <clears throat> including the media including Oprah mm -hmm. including Dr. Drew and you know an intervention mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. so it's big business um yeah now, when I say, you know, Andrew, when I say AA, um, I don't yeah. necessarily mean like the World Service headquarters. <clears throat> However, all of their literature uh -huh. and the way that the whole system is set up, you know, they do, uh, you know, have committees in every city where they're outreaching yeah. everywhere <clears throat> from the criminal justice system to, you know, UCLA uh -huh. mental health and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, visiting hospital mm -hmm. committees where they get all their, you know, lemmings, which this is the kind of stuff that I did as well. Mm -hmm. But it's very clear that mm -hmm. but when I say that A is in control, um, the AA philosophy is what I mean. The AA mm -hmm. modality yeah. of, uh, you know, you have to, what you're saying, the abstinence. and But it's, you know, bigger and, yeah. and, and bigger than that because if the AA, FAA requires a pilot to attend three meetings a week and to pay a psychiatrist who's an AA member, $1,500 or $2,500 uh, for a one-hour session, and he was once a fuck-up psychiatrist who then went to Hazleton, mm -hmm. and now he's in charge, and he's going to, I mean, mm -hmm. it's really crazy. But here's another, here's another thing. Did you read Chasing the Scream yeah. yet, that book that just came out by Jonathan Hart? I started it, and I've actually uh, I had a wonderful meeting with the author, Johan Hari, um, yeah, I think it's a really important book, and even though I, some people have taken issue with some of the science, but um, yeah, I, I think what, that what certainly the history of the drug. So here's something that we were just talking about. I, I mean, I'm on like page 100, right? And so far, and mm -hmm. I don't know where it's where it's going to end up. And I, you know, I know some people are saying, but I have to read it myself. So here's the thing, though, that. What he's saying is that right before AA, when you had the first, you know, uh, the guy, Anslinger, is it Harry Anslinger, whatever his name was, who was the head of the Federal mm -hmm. Bureau of Nar Narcotics, mm -hmm. that went out to, you know, to shut down everybody, arrested 20,000 doctors, that at one time it was illegal to prescribe these drugs, heroin or opium. In fact, it was legal. I mean, Gabrielle Glaser talks about it in her mm -hmm. book. You could buy a heroin kit in Sears and Roebuck. You could buy um, a little tin, you know, in, in a fancy uh, department store in London. You know, at the different times, way back when, 1910, whatever year it was, you could just go in, buy, and women were addicted to opium, and you could get it at your pharmacy. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they have the Harrison Act, which changes that. But right before, mm -hmm. and I think this explains a little bit how 
when I interviewed Tom Horvath, he said, okay, you know, AA entered a vacuum where there wasn't any self-help. But, you know, and I, I, I thought, oh, wow, that's so true. You know, that's very real. But what, the, what John, is it Johan Hari, what, what he says, or what the interesting yeah. part of this. So they arrest 20,000 doctors, kind of a few mm-hmm. years before AA began. So now doctors are arrested for treating addicts. So, of course, when mm-hmm. AA came along, doctors had been targeted for really horribly targeted for dealing with addicts. Yes. So, of course, they said, fine, fuck you. You want, it, you want the addicts? You want the alcoholics? Go ahead, take them. You got the answer? Good, because we're done. You have a government that's arresting our asses for treating them, so go ahead. So there uh-huh. was sort of a, it explains a piece of the puzzle for me, this book, yeah. uh, another mm-hmm. level of why doctors and why they kind of stepped back. And, you know, I mean, I have a great doctor who lives right next door to me. When he saw my movie, he said, Monica, I had no idea. That AA was so religious. Yes. That AA did all this and stuff. He said, I thought it was a support group. Yes, and you've also alluded to Harry Anslinger, which um, supplies another piece to the puzzle, which is his motivation for criminalizing drug use and drug users and doctors was because prohibition ended and... Um, they needed to have another focus for the criminal justice apparatus, and so they went after drugs. So interestingly, mm-hmm. they came out of a prohibitionist mentality against alcohol and turned it toward drug use. Right. And the prohibitionist mentality is what lives in the disease model um, abstinence-only view of addiction. Mm-hmm. Do you get that shift? Yes. Um, yeah, of because course. once you've been identified as being an addict or an alcoholic, right. then the only solution to the problem is complete and total abstinence. So now you are basically living under a prohibitionist mentality. Right. Or but there's edict. Another, the other thing I have a problem with is everybody who went on to get their degrees who were AA members and who worked for NIDA or NIAAA or worked for AA and then they go work for these organizations – is that they don't interview scientists. You know, and I, I really, um, because I was so young when I quit drinking at 18 on my own, um, that when I interviewed a neurosurgeon uh, who's, you know, my doctor, said clearly, you know, the brain, with them calling it a brain disease really pisses me off. Mm-hmm. Like you're talking mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. people who have never looked at a brain, they've never opened up somebody's skull, they've never studied the brain, they've sat around and read books and talked about theory, that for someone yep. to have told me, and I'm still upset about it, because AA went after youth. AA went into my grade mm-hmm. school. You know, AA went after, fo- mm-hmm. they're still going after foster kids. That, you know, to tell somebody yeah. that you're rebellious, mm-hmm. so you're an alcoholic. Now we've gone from Bill Wilson, you know, and so, I mean, I'm, you know, a little bit ranting here about the AA thing, and here you're a harm reduction guy, but you've been in this world, and I want everyone to know about all of you guys and your harm reduction approach mm-hmm. and to change the approach that yeah. if they really mm-hmm. want to stop recidivism and we don't want someone mm-hmm. else to kill somebody in a car accident, then don't send them to AA for the first time when they get into trouble. Let's talk about harm reduction with alcohol. That's right. Well, I think that um, you know we're using slightly different language or focusing slightly differently, but you know what you call the AA mentality, I call... Um, the tyranny of abstinence only, and I think that the tyranny, the tyranny of abstinence only, pervades right. our culture. Right. Wherever it comes from, maybe it originally came from AA, but now the tyranny of abstinence only provides a rationale for people in power to exercise their authority over other people to enforce um, various kinds of treatment. That is, if we believe that the only way to arrest your disease is complete and total abstinence, and we believe further that any continued use of a substance is your active disease, then by any means necessary, we feel justified in getting you to stop. And therefore, we can justify kicking you out, um, threatening Mm -hmm. your job, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, threatening your livelihood, uh, telling mm-hmm. your family to stop talking to you, 
Mm-hmm. So, so in the name of help, we can, you know, rationalize coercing um, you into sobriety. And that's what you're talking about. And and right. I believe that that system um, has traumatized so many people who were vulnerable, who were open to getting some help, who wanted to get some help. So th- there's also a power dynamic involved that's right. that, you know, is fueled by, I think, lots of different dynamics. So the alternative, what we're calling harm reduction therapy, mm-hmm is the opposite. What we're saying is coercion doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work. It re-traumatizes people. Right, right. Um, authoritarian treatment, prescriptive treatment doesn't work. First of all, most people don't go. Mm-hmm. They don't want it. They don't want to be treated like that. And right. the ones that are coerced generally don't get better because, you know, they get re-traumatized or they rebel, you know, to save their souls. Um the harm reduction you, work is about anti anti authoritarian collaborative empowering um so it's really uh you know turns that whole system upside down and that's mm-hmm. what we're advocating for as progressive help which really everybody helps. we are listening to Andrew Tatarski and he is a PhD out of New York City he has the center for optimal living where he uh, sees patients, and he has a group of seven other clinical psychologists there that work with him, PhDs, I would guess. So I'm just doing a little, you know, in between, so people who are listening, he has a book that you can get on Amazon called Harm Reduction Psychotherapy, a New Treatment for Drug and Alcohol Problems. Um, Did you ever see the um, episode of South Park? Uh, I've heard about it. I have never seen it. Uh, I'm not a South Park fan, really, but this episode is so amazing, and I had shown it to my husband. I saw it when I was on my way out the doors of AA about five years ago, and we watched it again with Kevin, my husband, and it was really even better because it's like he goes and they tell me he has a disease, and then he comes home and he's just sitting there like in his underwear, just drunk, and his son is like, what are you doing, Dad? And he's like, well, they told me I have a disease. There's something I can do about it. So I'm also, I mean, it's so <laughs> brilliant. And I don't, you know, usually say that about South Monica, Park. Yeah. Monica, you won't believe this, but um, I've, I've met, uh, you know, prospective clients who were drinking heavily, and one in particular, I mean, I've met many, many, many of them, and one in particular, I remember, uh, was sitting in my office in our first meeting, Mm -hmm. and I said, so, um, after he described to me his pattern of drinking, I said, so what are your thoughts about, you know, why um, you're drinking in that way? Mm -hmm. And he looked kind of mystified at me, and he said, well, uh, I mean, they told me I'm an alcoholic, Mm. That's that's what's wrong with the disease model because right. mm-hmm. it it reifies, it reduces, it oversimplifies. It it I think of it as an, as a, an attack on meaning, which is we drink and we take drugs because of complex meaning, reasons, suffering, you know wanting to feel better, wanting to expand our consciousness. So many complex factors, you know, right. come into play in, in mm-hmm. understanding a problematic relationship to a substance that to call it a disease completely collapses that complexity and um, therefore, I think, essentially makes it impossible to, or reinforces uh, you know, a difficulty making any change. You know, I think that eventually we could help each other in the sense that there's a few groups of people that don't think of themselves as being powerless, and um, one of them are the police force. And uh, mm-hmm. pilots are another one. I mean, I think surgeons, you know, but let's just start with the police department mm-hmm. and imagine mm-hmm. that there's mm-hmm. a high rate of suicide with the cops when they get a mm-hmm. DUI themselves. They just kill themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't want to get sent to AA mm-hmm. because they know that's where all the, the bad guys are being sent. Like they're really, you know, they know they've known they've known it sooner than I've known it. I've only known it for a few years that, that they were court ordering these guys there, right? Besides the um, average mm-hmm. Joe 
So the way that it could help with what I'm doing as I approach, and we can talk about this off the air as well, as I approach mm-hmm. judges, mm-hmm. And, we, and we try to circle around, that those of you who are professionals then follow up with, say, the police departments and say, look, we know this isn't oh. working. Are you um, there? Can you hear me? Yes, I lost you there for a minute. Oh, okay. You were just saying those of us that are professionals. Those of you that are professionals could follow up after maybe I first reach out to the public information of the police department and say, look, we know that no cop wants to stand there and say I'm powerless and then hold hands with the other cops mm-hmm. and say the mm-hmm. Lord's Prayer. Mm-hmm. You know, um, mm-hmm. pilots. But that's that's very embedded. AA is like it's been in there since 1974. But once the lawsuit goes forward with the FAA and their airlines, they're going to need, there are guys, they, mm-hmm. a lot of the pilots just self-reported. They didn't even get in any trouble. You know what I mean? They didn't get a DUI. Mm-hmm. They, there's all mm-hmm. kinds of stories, and they're reaching out for help, and they innocently go to their EAP, and they're, all of a sudden they're sent down this you know road that's nuts. And, and even mm-hmm. a doctor I was on the phone with last week, the guy's ready to kill himself. I mean, this is... Yeah. Where then you could, you know, you or your the whole group of your community, mm-hmm. um, I could refer mm-hmm. them and say, look, here is a professional. This is yeah. we need to go down this well, other road. This is um, a very timely um, conversation to have because I and a group of uh, addiction professionals in New York, and mm-hmm. I, I say addiction in quotes because I'm, I have trouble with that term. Yeah. Um, but we, you know, we're stuck with the language that we have. Right. But a group of about 15 um, addiction professionals met in my office um, in the last month mm-hmm. to begin a discussion about establishing an organization of addiction professionals mm-hmm. for sensible drug policy, mm-hmm. essentially mm-hmm. to do exactly what you're talking about, to be oh, well. a voice mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. reason, um, that that will speak up to the government organizations that are mm-hmm. stacked with their their own people that they picked, um, and to have a speakers bureau and so on. Mm. And oh, secondly, so can, you may yeah. know. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This is great. Well, what were you going to say? Well, yeah. I was going to say that. I mean, I have a couple of names and uh, of the organization, but I think off. The air. Let's have another conversation. And because we didn't, the time is. What do we have? Seven minutes left. So we'll finish. But we. All, I think we need another mm-hmm. part two with you, so that because we that. got all yeah. into the history. But I think let's have you on again, kind of if we can, within like the month or within another month, mm-hmm. so that you can talk mm-hmm. about your approach. We can talk more about. There's people out there that are really still hurting that listen to my show, that are that blog on my blog, that are blogging on Facebook, mm-hmm. that are mm-hmm. still um, having, they're traumatized from AA, they still might be drinking yeah. problematically, and they need other answers. Yeah. You know what I mean? So you maybe know, we have I've another been, session. I, Go yeah. ahead. I would love to have another session. Um, uh, I mean, just one point that you make is I, I have heard I mean, I, and I know so many people who have been traumatized uh, by AA or by AA-based programs or by mm-hmm. other programs that are, you know, humiliation therapy-based, uh, mm-hmm. and so much so that I've been thinking at our center that we need to start explicit offering explicit services for people who have been traumatized by treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, I've I've recently started. I've coined the term treatment trauma. <laughs> because I think that particularly in the in the substance use world, yeah. there yeah. is so much of it that has never been named. You know, the way that we began right. to talk about, um, uh, you know, uh, rape and other terrible things mm-hmm. that were never talked about. I think this is something. Mm-hmm. But I, I do want to say that I on my website... Um, uh, the Center for Optimal Living. dot com. We have a number of things, a number of papers that people can read um, at our media tab. Um, they could look up things about my book. There are mm-hmm. some journal articles people can get for free. Mm-hmm. But also under the treatment tab, there's a something that I call the abstinence alternative process, uh-huh. and it's something uh-huh. that people can go to and access for free 
Mm-hmm. It's a series of pages that are really designed to walk people through um, a consideration of developing, you know, your ideal relationship to substances. And so it kind of maps a lot of the ideas that I have developed in integrative harm reduction therapy right. um, in a kind of self-guided uh, process that people oh, this can is work great. through. So this is great. That might really be useful nice. to, to folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, everybody. Mm-hmm. So Center for Optimal Living, It's everything is on my um, here on the radio show. I think I put everything there, but I'm looking at it. This is really nice. So there's step one, then you click on step two. And it has like a, you know, it's not too much to handle, but it's like just enough. Step three, self-assessing what problematics, what's problematic about your substance use. Step four is the embracing ambivalence. Very good. I think I've, not for mm-hmm. me, but for people that I know that still have issues. Um, setting positive change uh, goals. And step six is making a personal plan for positive change. Uh, wow. So everybody out there, this is really good. Thank you for uh, telling my listeners and me about that. It's um, yeah, it's really good. That's uh, my pleasure. Again, yeah, yeah, it's really. Let me get back to my my radio face page. We have like three minutes left. Um, again, mm-hmm. we've been talking with Andrew Tatarski at the Center for Optimal Living. His book is Harm Reduction, Psychotherapy, and New Treatment for Drug and Alcohol Problems. When I come to New York, I would love to show my film for a group of professionals. I think there could we could fill a place somewhere. I hope to get into this one particular film festival. They're going to let me know uh, that's going to be well, in New York. You know what we love to do at the center? We because as I said before, part of our perspective on substance use is that it's always political. There's always a political and a social dimension that we need Mm. to be looking at. And so part of what we do is we put on uh, public forums, and Mm. we, um, we do that in conjunction with the New School for Social Research, which gives us space for free, and often also with the Division on Addiction for New York State mm-hmm. Psychological Association. So we yeah. can get, a, and the Harm Reduction Coalition, we can get a bunch of organizations together to mm-hmm. co-sponsor, if you'd like, an event where we might show your film, uh, get a couple hundred people in the room, mm-hmm. um, and then have a panel discussion inviting some you know, folks, yourself certainly, and others to talk about all the relevant issues. Oh, my God, that sounds fantastic. Yes, I would love to do that um, with you, and we can talk about it and both the ideas with the prof- the professionals and a coalition. Uh, I, I want to thank you so mm-hmm. much, Andrew, for being on my show. I know you're a very, very busy guy, and uh, mm-hmm. again, I'm so glad that Gabrielle Glaser just pushed me one more time. She's like, you really need to talk to this guy. <laughs> and it was like at the right moment, I said, okay, I need to do it, and then uh, you had time, but... Uh, you know, is yeah. there anything else you would like to say to some of my listeners out there who might still be uh, either traumatized or uh, like a minute? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, just like you, you know, when I discovered the harm reduction framework, I, I, I felt like that was my spiritual reawakening, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, I and that's become my guiding philosophy, not just in my work but in my own life and it's a philosophy that's based that is that is incredibly inspiring and hopeful um it's based on self-compassion you know self-acceptance uh, compassion toward others honoring diversity um mm-hmm. you know really a stout, you know creating a, a foundation of that's conducive to Starting, you know, a journey of healing and growth and positive change, and that's, you know, we're all of us humans are on that journey, and so I think with the right kind of framework, um, you know, really wonderful, incredible things can happen that the wrong framework really renders impossible. So I, I really am so uh, glad to have the opportunity to meet you and to exchange ideas with you and um you know i hope we can continue the conversation and 
and with your listeners. You know, I feel like this is a communal effort. I, it is we're definitely. All we're all running involved. out of time. I want to thank you so much, Andrew Tatarski, for joining me tonight. Again, my name is Monica Richardson. This is Blog Talk Radio Safe Recovery, and we will see you all next week. We'll have somebody else on. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you, Andrew. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Hey, it's my pleasure. And we'll right, be. We'll in talk touch. again soon. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Great. Bye bye. Good night. Bye.